who doesn't love Calvin and Hobbes? If you do not know this comic strip, you are missing out on one of the more uh, finer pieces of art in our culture. Maybe that's a little bit of an exaggeration. But it has piercing insight into the human condition. For example, there's this beautiful strip where Calvin and Hobbes are sitting there looking at the sunset as it reflects on the water in front of them. And Calvin sits there, the six-year-old, with his pet tiger and laments out loud, I'll bet I'm missing some great TV shows. <laughs> or how about this one? Calvin and Hobbes are walking along in the snow, and Calvin blurts out, Some people complain all the time. They complain about the least little thing. If something bugs them, they never let go of it. They just go on and on, long after anyone else is interested. It's just complain, complain, complain. People who gripe all the time really drive me nuts. You'd think that they'd change the subject after a while, but they never do. They just keep griping until you start to wonder, what's wrong with this idiot? But they go on, complaining and repeating what they've already said. And Hobbes interjects, maybe they're not very self-aware. And Calvin retorts, boy, that's another thing that gets on my nerves. <laughs> Self-awareness. Let me ask you this question. How self-aware are you? If you were to rate yourself on a scale of 1 to 10, with basically the bottom of the scale being, I'm completely clueless on self-awareness, to the other side, which would be basically the definition of self-awareness, where would you put yourself? With that as a context, let me ask you this next question. <laughs> Do you ever complain Not just simply out loud, but internally, and the dialogue that you have going on inside your head, inside your heart. Do you ever complain? If we're going to tally up, we're almost at the end of January, for this new year, if we're going to tally up in your life how many times you have complained, either internally or, or externally, how many ticks would you have there? How about just this last week? Or maybe even this morning? Someone says, it's going to be one of those kind of sermons, ain't it, Pastor? Yeah, it is. But let me say this. Two things, really. I'm going to be as gentle with you as I can. Because I've had to preach this to myself this week before I could get up and preach it to you. But ultimately, I'm going to blame the Apostle Paul because he's the one who brings up this issue. As he writes from prison, some ten years after he helped establish the church in Philippi, he writes to these Christians living there, and he calls them to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. See, he's convinced that following Jesus will help you live the best life that you can. It will help you become the best version of yourself that you can as you seek to bring your life in conformity with the will of Jesus and the way of Jesus. And so he's writing to these believers struggling in a very difficult city to follow Christ. And he says to them, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's convinced that if they do, and if they can follow his counsel on how to follow Jesus, then they will shine like stars in that culture. So in fact, we're going to call our study today, Shining Like Stars. And we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. And actually, I had Dr. Long read for us the verses we looked at last week, just for context. Let me repeat those again. Paul says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, and he's thinking back to the 10 years previous when he, he went into that city and announced the good news of the crucified and resurrected Lord and how Jesus calls people like them to faith and trust in him. 
He's thinking about how they obeyed that invitation to follow Jesus. So he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. If you were with us last week, you will remember that we talked about how this passage doesn't teach you to work for your salvation. You can't. It's a, it's a gift from God. But once you have it, you can flesh it out. You can live it out. Or you can work it out, to use Paul's words here. So as he calls them to work out their salvation, because God is at work in them, the first thing he wants to bring up is this issue of complaining, of grumbling. <laughs> so he says in verse 14, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That word grumbling is an interesting word in the original language. You look it up in the dictionaries and it says this. It's the expression of a secret and sullen discontent, a murmuring, a, a complaint, or a secret that is internal debate, a, a secret displeasure not openly avowed. It seems to be something on the inside that wants to work itself out. So you could translate it as muttering, murmuring, complaining, or as my translation has here, grumbling. The other word that Paul <laughs> discourages here is the word disputing. It's another interesting word. It, it describes the thinking of a man deliberating within himself, a, a disputation that arises, a contention, a contention or arguing. You might phrase it like this, a, an internal dialogue that manifests itself in disputing, questioning, arguing, this, this desire just to, to always be at it. And so we might put it when we look at these words, grumbling or disputing, a grumbling and complaining attitude with a combative edge to it. So think about, think about it like that. So, Paul says he wants you to do all things without grumbling or disputing. So how are you doing, my friends? <laughs> Notice he says do all things. The apostle doesn't say do most things without grumbling or disputing. Instead, he says do all things without grumbling or disputing. Not just your public life, but your private life. Not just when you're at work, but when you're at home. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. And someone says, come on, man, how is that even possible? I mean, does he know what kind of world we live in? I think he does. Remember, Paul is writing this from prison. And let me remind you, he's been in prison for four years at this point. Two years in Israel, and, and he appealed to Caesar to hear his case, and he's been in, in prison in Rome for two years, awaiting his trial before Nero Caesar. This man has street cred, we might put it that way. In fact, he told the Corinthians this, that he has had far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I have received from the hands the hands of the Jews, the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. If anyone had the right to grumble, we might say, Paul, you get a pass. Man, you've gone through it. 
And so when he says to his original audience, and we get to hear those words to the centuries spoken to us, do all things without grumbling and disputing, we need to hear this from a man who's learned to do this very thing. He's not writing from some ivory tower, posh couch, with fans blowing in his face, eating nice grapes and things like that. <laughs> He's living in prison, dependent on the goodwill of other people so that he can even eat. And so he has learned to do all things without grumbling and disputing. So, so let's lean in to hear these wise words from a seasoned follower of Jesus that we might learn something of what he learned. And so when Paul calls them to do all things without grumbling or disputing, he's going to give them three reasons why they should do that. And the first reason goes like this. Grumbling goes against your identity as a child of God. Grumbling goes against your identity as a child of God. Listen to what he says. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Let's dial into the, to the meat of this verse. He says that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And if we had our, our ears tuned to the Hebrew scriptures, we would know that Paul is deliberately echoing the book of Exodus and the grumblings that happened among the children of God after Moses had led them out of slavery in Egypt by the power of God. There's that time where they come and they just went a little bit hungry and all of a sudden grumbling comes out of them. Think back to this passage in Exodus chapter 16. The whole congregation of the people of Israel, these are the, the original children of God, you might say, they grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the, my, by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. <laughs> this would be comic if it wasn't so, so tragic. right? They had been calling out to the Lord to deliver them from the harsh slavery they were facing. They were not sitting by pots of meat and having their bellies filled with bread. They were slaves getting by on a very subsistence kind of life. But now, this new trial that's upon them, what comes out of them is complaining. And Moses responds and says this, The Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Isn't that interesting? And after he spends more time with them, he will say this. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? He says, by the way they live, they, they forfeited being children of God in any real sense because they're grumbling and complaining. That's not the way that God's children should respond to him. And so they have become, these very people of God have become a crooked and twisted generation. So going back to Philippians, when we hear Paul say that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, he's telling them that they are not the crooked and twisted generation. That's, that's the backdrop, that's the atmosphere they live in, the society they live in. But he wants them to do all things without grumbling, complaining, so that they may be children. When he says here that you may be blameless and innocent, it's not meaning sinless, but people who are above reproach. 
to whom that accusation of grumbling and complaining cannot be leveled. And so he wants them to do all things without grumbling or disputing, that they may be blameless and innocent children of God in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And then he says this, among whom you shine as lights in the world. He's thinking about that city of Philippi they live in, which is a hotbed of of patriotism for the empire and, and emperor worship and all the corruption and the darkness that's in that society. And he says, look, as you follow Jesus and you live out a life of putting to death complaining, you actually shine like stars in a culture that does nothing but complain. Here he says, you shine as lights in the world. You can translate that word world. It's, it's the Greek word cosmos. You can translate it like this. You shine like stars in the universe. <laughs> Paul is convinced that as they follow Jesus and put this into practice, it's going to make a big difference in their culture. They're going to shine. They're going to illuminate it. So I was researching this passage this week. I was reading a commentary by Dennis Johnson, and he said something very interesting I want to share with you. He said, this is a new perspective on our out-of-place location in this world. Paul puts a surprising, positive spin on the fact that we do not fit here. He says, in effect, the spiritual and moral darkness of the surrounding society may give the impression that you are misfits. But that is only the darkness talking. By radiant grace, God has broken through the darkness of your own mind, opening your eyes to see the splendor of Jesus. Now he is making you into beacons of light, reflections of Jesus, the light of the world, in a midnight sky. Of course, Jesus, our great Savior, was described as the light of the world. He said, I am the light of the world. And then one of the most astonishing moves he tells his disciples that they are the very same thing. In the Gospel of Matthew, he tells them, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus wants his followers to shine. And so when Paul tells his audience that he wants them to shine, he's echoing this very thought. And so grumbling goes against your identity and your calling as a child of God. The second thing that the Apostle Paul says in making his case is that grumbling goes against your calling to hold firmly to the gospel of Jesus. Grumbling goes against your calling to hold firmly to the gospel of Jesus. Verse 14, he says, Do all things without grumbling and disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Here he talks about holding fast to the word of life. What is this word of life? It's the word of life, of eternal life, that's found in Jesus. Remember what Jesus said. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Jesus spoke about life and spoke about eternal life. When we believe in him, when we trust him, believe what the Father says about him, we pass from, life, from death into life. So what is this death he's talking about? Well, it's what the scriptures simply describe as this separation that we have from God. The wages of sin is death. Now think of what a wage is. It's something that you get paid. It's your job, you get paid wages, unless you're doing it pro bono, doing it for free. Wages are something you earn. And he says here, the Apostle Paul, 
that the wages of sin, what sin pays out to you, is death. It's, it's separation from God. Of course, the rest of that verse says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so you think about what Jesus did for people like you and me. How he went to the cross, bearing our shame. When, when this world threw its worst at him and darkness covered the land, there Jesus had placed upon him the sins of people like you and me, where God condemned in the flesh the sins of his folks, of his people. And so when you think about what Jesus has done for you, as you hold firm and fast to that, what rises up within you? Is it a sense of complaining? <laughs> of course not. It's gratitude. It's, it's joy. It's rejoicing that he went through that separation from God so that I will never be separated from him. And so that's why we sing songs like we did earlier. You're rich in love and you're slow to anger. Your name is great and your heart is kind. For all your goodness, I will keep on what? Not complaining. I will keep on singing. 10,000 reasons for my heart to find. When we hold firmly to the gospel, this word of life, what wells up inside of us is gratitude, rejoicing, thankfulness. And so when Paul says he wants them to hold fast to the word of life, we need to hear him saying, hold firmly to this message of life. That is the message about eternal life that's found in Christ Jesus. And then he has this. So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. And someone says, well, isn't being proud something bad? Well, it can be. But as Paul sits there and thinks about that day, when he's standing before the Lord Jesus Christ, when God sets this world to right, he's going to know those Philippian people will be there. And he wants to be proud of the work of God in their life. And so he's going to look upon them, and then he's going to look at Jesus and say, Jesus, see what your grace has done in these people. Do you see how they're shining like stars? That's what Paul wants for his audience, and what he wants for us as well. So he's told them that grumbling goes against your identity as a child of God. You are meant to shine out in the darkness, not add to it. He's also told them that grumbling goes against your calling to hold firmly to the gospel of Jesus. The third argument he's going to make here is that grumbling goes against your ability to rejoice in everything. Now, verse 17 is going to sound a little bit weird to us because we're not that accustomed to all the offerings that took place in the Old Testament. But let's, let's read it and just work through it briefly. As Paul reflects on that coming day of Christ and how maybe he might stand before him sooner rather than later, he says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. So let's dial in on this for a moment. He talks about their, their sacrificial offering of their faith. What does he mean by that? When, he responded, when they responded to the good news that Paul taught them about Jesus, they, they responded in faith. They, they trusted in Christ for the salvation of sins, for eternal life, for welcome into his kingdom. And so he looks upon the work of the gospel in their life, and he thinks about it as a sacrifice. And he's thinking in his own mind, if I'm executed before Nero, I want to think about myself as being poured out as a drink offering. Now, if we're familiar with the Old Testament offerings that took place, there are, there are several basic kind of offerings. There's a sin offering, there's a grain offering, there's also a drink offering. And drink offerings would be oftentimes poured out upon a sacrifice, blended in with it. 
And so as he thinks about the sacrificial offering of their faith, how view of God's mercy, they offer themselves as living sacrifices. Paul thinks, if I'm going to die for the faith, I want to think about it like I'm being poured out upon their, upon their sacrifice of their faith. And so he says, if that happens, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, also, you should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul, how can you be serious? How can you rejoice if you're executed simply for being a Christian and telling others about Jesus? Well, remember what Paul said earlier in, the, in this uh, letter. He says, to live is Christ, and to die is what? Gain. If I go on living, it's a win, because I get to keep on talking about Jesus. I keep on seeing people come to faith in Jesus and that salvation working itself out in them. But if I die, it's gain. It's a win, because I get to go and be with Christ. So Paul says, look, if I, if I end up being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice of their faith, I'm going to rejoice and be glad. He says, I want you to rejoice and be glad with me as well. See, only a perspective of the gospel gives us this ability to rejoice. In fact, later on in chapter 4 of this letter, he's going to tell them, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. My friends, hear this from a man who's been sitting in chains for four years. He's learned that you can do this. He's learned that this is the fruit of the gospel at work in, in your life and in mine. That there is, no matter what is going on, an ability, a supernatural ability to rejoice in what God has done in and through us. So, we might be able to put it like this. If grumbling about circumstances is the way of the world, rejoicing in the Lord is the way of the Christian. If, if, if grumbling about circumstances is the way of this, this crooked and twisted generation that we live in, then rejoicing in the Lord is the way of the Christian in the midst of this crooked and twisted generation. Or we might be able to put it like this. A heart full of grumbling and complaining cannot coexist with a heart full of great, uh, rejoicing and gratefulness. So my friends, I, I want to stress to us just a few points of application here as we think about this. Here's the first one. Let's take the warning about grumbling and complaining with absolute seriousness. Let's take this warning about grumbling with absolute seriousness. Someone says, come on now, aren't you being a bit overly dramatic? <laughs> sure, grumbling isn't great, but really it can't be as big of a deal as you're making it. I used to think that way. Until the day I remember reading that passage in Exodus we looked at earlier. Let me just pull it back up here. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Here are their leaders who pulled them out of, of slavery, and now they're grumbling against them. But listen to how Moses diagnosed what really was going on. He says, The Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. You see how he's helping connect the dots for them? He says, when you're grumbling, it's not against us. Your beef is with God. You're really grumbling against him. So let's be clear. When we grumble, we are grumbling against the Lord. And every grumble is a veiled accusation against the goodness and kindness of God. Do you see that? You're saying, well, I was, I was grumbling against my wife. I wasn't grumbling against the Lord. 
You're grumbling against the Lord who gave you this wife that you're grumbling against. You say, well, I'm, I'm grumbling about my situation at work. If you were in my shoes, you'd understand why. And actually, what Moses would say is, you're actually grumbling against the Lord who, who gave you that job. Now, I'm not saying, friends, that you can't share your burden. You can't seek counsel. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm asking you to ask yourself, when you are grumbling in your spirit, when you're grumbling and it makes its, its way out of your mouth, who are you really grumbling against? C.S. Lewis has this um, incredible book called The Great Divorce. It's, it's a parable, really. It's, it's a dream that he has um, about folks on the outskirts of, of hell taking a bus ride to the outskirts of heaven and the people in heaven trying to plead with them to come in. And He's not saying this is theology or anything like that. He's, just, he's telling a parable. Um, it's really about those who desire heaven. But in this they come across this one soul who is a grumbling soul. And in it, his teacher tells him these words. It begins with a grumbling mood and yourself still distinct from it, perhaps criticizing it. <laughs> I really shouldn't be grumbling. And yourself in a dark hour may will that mood, embrace it. But there may come a day when you can no longer when you can do that no longer, there will be no you left to criticize the mood, nor even to enjoy it, just the grumble going on forever. You see what C.S. Lewis is saying? He's saying that, that grumbling, you may think of yourself as distinct from it, but there's a way in which it, you can become so merged with it that you essentially become one long grumble that goes on and on and on and on and on. You become your sin. That's the way the scripture puts it. So friends, let's take the warning about grumbling and complaining with absolute seriousness. Here's the second point of application. Let's go to the heart of the matter. When we think about grumbling, the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. The heart, of course, scripturally speaking, is what's most central about you. It's, it's the fountain of your life, so to speak. Listen to how Jesus put it in the Gospel of Mark. He says, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. And he lists several here. Sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. He says, all these evils come from inside and defile a person. It's not like you're taking something from outside of you and putting it in you. When you grumble, it's coming from inside of you and going out of you. And even though Jesus doesn't list grumbling and complaining here, he easily could have. What comes out of us is what's in us. So let me put it like this. Our circumstances, get this, my friends, our circumstances don't cause us to grumble. They only reveal the grumbling that is resonant in our hearts. The circumstances you find ourselves in don't make us grumble. Rather, they reveal the grumbling that is already latent in your heart. It's just like water, watering the seeds that are there. Listen to how Sinclair Ferguson put it in an article he wrote, The Power of the Tongue. He said, our mouth is the hinge 
on which the door into our souls swings open in order to reveal our spirit. In effect, our words are like so many media people rushing to file the reports on the condition of our soul. You see what he's saying? Our words simply tell everyone what's going on inside our hearts. When we're grumbling and complaining, it's showing to other people that we have a grumbling and complaining spirit within us, that it's welling up from our hearts. And so like, like so many media people rushing to file the reports on the condition of our souls, you might say, well, that's fake news. Maybe, <laughs> but maybe not. And so my friends, I think part of, of being in community with other believers is we get the opportunity to walk with one another and to invite one another into our lives to help us understand when things are going a little bit sideways. I love it when people seek counsel and feedback on, on how they are doing and how people are experiencing them. I think of what Paul Tripp wrote in his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, an excellent book, by the way. He said, personal insight is a product of community. I need you in order to really see and know myself. I will list, otherwise, I will listen to my own arguments, believe my own lies, and buy into my own delusions. Believe my own complaining. <laughs> he goes on and says, My self-perception is as accurate as a carnival mirror. If I'm going to see myself clearly, I need you to hold up the mirror of God's word in front of me. So what does that mean, my friend? <laughs> he, say, he says... <laughs> Insight into how you are, or to put it in the way that Calvin and Hobbes said it earlier in our message, self-awareness. Self-awareness comes as we're in community with other people who can help us see ourselves more clearly, who can reflect to us the Scripture's truth. And so let me suggest maybe do something like this. What if you got together with someone who knows you well, who's been able to observe you maybe over the years, and ask them this question? Say something like, I'm trying to see myself more clearly, and I need your help. Can you help me notice when I am complaining? Can you help me notice when I'm grumbling? Can you help me notice when I'm muttering? Remember how I told you earlier that I had to preach this to myself first before I could preach it to you? Um, I took my wife out on our regular Friday lunch date this week, and I asked her to do this in my life. Thankfully, she said, I'm, I'm complaining less in my life. So that's, that's good news. Jesus is at work in my life. He's at work in your life as well. But I asked her to help me see something that I can't always see myself because I'm not often very self-aware. That is, I need her help to help me see what I can't see. That is, when I'm complaining. So, the first point of application was this. Let's take the warning about grumbling and complaining with absolute seriousness. The second point of application was, let's go to the heart of the matter. And the third point, of course, has to be this. Let's apply the gospel of Jesus to our life. We sing this song, It Is Well With My Soul. You know this song is so good. But it has in there this line. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. My friends, I know to bring up something like complaining. You just have to bring it up, and it's convicting, right? <laughs> it's like when I say to someone, hey, how's your prayer life? <laughs> Automatically, they just feel horrible, right? And I do, too, when people ask me about my prayer life. I'm growing in it. 
But it's easy to be convicted about this. And it's easy for you just to walk out of here and go, man, I'm a horrible human being. And that's not what I want you to do. I do want you to grow in self-awareness. I do want you to see the deadly seriousness of complaining and grumbling and muttering. But I want you to remember that you don't bear that sin anymore. It's been nailed, not just part of it, but all of it to the cross. And you bear it no more. See, my friends, the gospel is the only thing that can change a grumbling and complaining heart into a rejoicing and thankful heart. The gospel is a good word about eternal life, the forgiveness of sins, but it's also the power of God at work in you to follow Jesus and to put into effect his will for your life. So Mercy Hill Church, may you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And may God so work in you that you shine like stars, illuminating for the world a better way of being human as we follow Jesus together. Mm -hmm.